Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Extraordinary tales from around the globe and throughout history. I'm Dan Benson. On the 9th of June 1990, a shift maintenance manager, who shall remain nameless, was tasked with replacing a window on an ageing jetliner being operated by British Airways. The plane had to be back in action in 27 hours' time, so he was in a bit of a hurry and he replaced the window, which happened to be one of the windscreens, using new bolts but simply swapping new for old on a like-for-like basis, without referring to the maintenance documentation. As it would turn out, the very same window on the ageing BAC 111 had been replaced previously and 84 of the 90 bolts used were of an incorrect diameter, with the remaining 6 being the correct diameter but the wrong length. Many modern aircraft have windows that are fitted internally and work as a plug with the cabin pressure pushing them against the fuselage. Not so the BAC-111, which came into service some 29 years earlier in 1961, and the maintenance manager's error in judgment, evidently compounded by a previous error in judgment, would have serious consequences that could have been much, much worse. On the 10th of June 1990, just 27 hours after the windscreen was replaced, Captain Tim Lancaster and his co-pilot Alastair Atchison were taxiing the BAC-111 down the runway with 81 passengers aboard for British Airways Flight 5390, travelling from Birmingham to Spain. Atchison took the controls and got the plane airborne before passing the controls back to Lancaster. Now cruising at an altitude of 17,300 feet, the two men loosened their shoulder harnesses and began to settle in for the journey, but Lancaster, confident that Atchison had conducted a textbook takeoff and that it would be a typical and uneventful flight, also took off his lap sash. And mere seconds after removing this last restraint, the bolts in the windscreen failed, and the windscreen panel, the very windscreen panel in front of Tim Lancaster, separated from the forward fuselage. As the plane decompressed, the rush of air sucked the now unrestrained pilot out of the window. Well, not entirely. His knees caught on the controls, and as it should happen, one of the stewards, Nigel Ogden, walked into the cockpit just at that very moment. With Lancaster's knees caught on the controls, his progress out the window was sufficiently hampered, just long enough for Ogden to grab hold of the pilot's legs. This stopped him from being completely sucked out the window, but Ogden didn't have the strength to get him back inside again. Effectively, Tim Lancaster was flapping about outside the plane like a rag doll, being repeatedly battered against the fuselage in freezing conditions. And he wasn't the only one having dramas. Atchison was having troubles too. The remaining windows on the flight deck had fogged up and the internal door had lodged itself in an awkward position across the instrument panel and was being held there by air pressure. This had manipulated the controls, forcing the plane into a steep dive, whilst also pushing the throttle forward, and the position of the door made it difficult for Atchison to access the panel and regain control of the aircraft. But he was finally able to regain control at around 11,000 feet, 
where the cabin pressure stabilised and he could engage the autopilot. He now had the difficult task of conversing with air traffic control. In such extreme winds, he wasn't able to hear them. Meanwhile, Lancaster, supported by Ogden and another flight attendant called John Hewitt, was still pressed against the exterior of the plane in minus 20 conditions and starting to suffer from frostbite. His head was being repeatedly battered against the fuselage and by this stage everyone had reservations that he was probably already dead. But even if that likelihood could be confirmed, they couldn't let his corpse slip out of the window. Not merely out of decency, but also for fear it would be sucked into one of the engines with devastating consequences. At 8.55am, Atchison was able to make an emergency landing at Southampton Airport, and finally, Tim Lancaster was brought back into the plane. Shocked, fractured, bruised and frostbitten, but alive. First Officer Alastair Atchison and cabin crew member Nigel Ogden were given the Queen's commendation for valuable service in the air. So, too, was cabin crew member Suzanne Prince, who, while Bedlam was being unleashed inside the plane, spent her time reassuring the passengers and calmly took them through the emergency landing procedure. As for Tim Lancaster, he made a full recovery after his extraordinary brush with death and was back at work before the end of the year. The fictional character James Bond, the dashing debonair spy capable of pretty much anything, well, he works for MI6. We all know that, don't we? We've almost certainly heard of the CIA and even Israel's national intelligence agency, the Mossad, would have a familiar ring to it for many, even if you're not quite sure where you heard it. We have our own secret intelligence organisations here in Australia too. If you happen to be an Australian like myself, you'd probably have heard of ASIO, the Australian Secret Intelligence Organisation. Clever name, hey? But while ASIO is primarily concerned with secret intelligence from within Australia, did you know that we have another intelligence service called ASIS? Wait for it. The Australian Secret Intelligence Service. Gold. They, like MI6 or the CIA, are Australia's foreign intelligence agency. But you more than likely have never heard of them. Could this be, because they are just so good at doing secret stuff, that their very existence goes completely under the radar, even in their home country? Or... Is it that they just aren't very good and never achieved the recognition of their overseas equivalents? Perhaps the following tale might give some clues to the answer to that question. You see, in 1983, secret counter-terrorism training was conducted by ASIS, in public, mind you, on the 10th floor of Melbourne's Sheraton Hotel. The aim? to protect Australians taken hostage by terrorists. And so, on the 30th of November 1983, a hostage crisis scenario was conducted, but being that it was a secret, nobody told the hotel's management. And so it was that four ASIS officers, six trainees and two commandos from the Australian Army Reserves, 
began the mock hostage exercise. The trainees were tasked with rescuing the hostages, who were made up of the officers with the commandos playing the part of the baddies. But in a decision they would come to regret, the organisers gave the trainees carte blanche to handle the situation as they saw fit. Trainees are called trainees for a reason, and their youth, exuberance and lack of experience saw them make some fairly ill-considered decisions, starting with putting on balaclavas and theatrical masks and bashing doors in. The hotel's guests, who weren't in on it, rang reception to report a crazy group of armed robbers looting rooms on the 10th floor. The hotel's manager decided to go and have a look, and you have to remember this was Australia in 1983. A lot of people didn't even lock their cars or take the keys out of the ignition when they ducked into the shop, and so he probably wasn't really expecting it when he arrived on the 10th floor and a masked gunman threw him back into the elevator and sent him back to the ground floor. The manager, as you could probably guess, rang the police and shortly after hanging up, some five masked men carrying machine guns burst out of the elevator and ran out the rear of the building, getting into their cars and speeding away. One of those cars was stopped by police. It seems the secret exercise by the secret agents, despite being conducted in a busy hotel, in full view of the guests, was such a secret the police had not been informed and when the men in the car failed to identify themselves or cooperate, they were arrested. But if they had cooperated and identified themselves, would that have gone any better for them? Imagine driving erratically through the streets of Melbourne with balaclavas in your laps and automatic weapons by your side, and trying to explain to the police that you're with the Secret Service. In any case, they would eventually be identified as ACES agents, not just by the police, but by the media, who had now got hold of the story and plastered it all over the front pages of newspapers right across the country, to the sounds of people being outraged, but more often laughing their heads off, and occasionally asking, what's an ACES? It was also reported that the agents had been consuming large quantities of alcohol. Again, it was Australia, 1983. The damage done to the Sheraton saw them paid some $300,000 in an out-of-court settlement, and that was quite a sum of money in 1983, so the damage to the hotel must have been quite significant. For its part, ASUS wasn't allowed to play with submachine guns anymore, at least for some years. That privilege wasn't reinstated until 2004. Hopefully, they learned their lesson and won't make any more extraordinary messes. You've been listening to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care, catch ya.